It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. This is the 25th episode of Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. On Monday, we saw two big events on the awards season calendar. At the Gotham Awards, Birdman won Best Film. And when the New York Film Critics Circle did their voting, Boyhood won Best Film. So the awards season calendar continues to roll along. But we also now have the 2015 Sundance lineup. So what do these awards really mean when we're really interested in independent film that doesn't exist to win prizes, but just to be good movies? Anne and I delve into that matter, and we also share our picks for the week and a bunch of other topics going on in the independent film world. Remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, and you can find us on Twitter and share feedback there. I'm at Eric Cohn, and Ann Thompson is at AK Stanley. Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, here at IndieWire with Thompson and I with Ann Thompson. And gosh, every time we talk, I feel like we get a little bit busier. So I'm, I'm still trying to figure out if I'm recording a podcast right now or working on deadline or trying to process award season. How are you holding up, Ann? You know, I have to say, I feel a little bit beat up, but this just goes with the goes with the territory. I just got back from my chiropractor. <laughs> you know, that's what's going on. But um, the, basically, you're right. It's hard to imagine it getting any busier. But one of the reasons you're busier is because you have been promoted. You have a new job. You are the new deputy editor of IndieWire. And if I may be so bold, I am delighted because I have been hoping that um, given the burgeoning growth of IndieWire and the expansion thereof and all the different players that are part of this uh, bigger site than it was, you know, back when you started and when I started, um, it, it's really, uh, it, it needs an editor like you. And I'm, I'm, you know, Dana Harris remains editor in chief and, and, uh, Nigel Smith remains, remains managing editor, but you are going to be doing a lot more coordinating among all the missing, uh, you know, links that we have at this, at this place. Well, thanks, Anne. It's really nice of you to bring that up. I mean, I have to tell you, it's it's been exciting for me to watch IndieWire grow so quickly. I don't think any of us were expecting it to grow this fast, and so I'm sort of excited to put all these pieces together and, and see, you know, what else we can do. One of the things that's really exciting about us, I think, is that, you know, a lot of publications only exist because they think they can fill some sort of niche in the marketplace, but IndieWire really comes from a place of passion for independent film and, and sort of this connection to the independent film community, so... I mean, we couldn't be better positioned to keep building on that. And I'm really pumped about that. Though I have to say, you know, sometimes what we do and and sort of the world swirling around us, it, it can be so overwhelming when you think about, you know, how the way that we cover different aspects of the film world is sort of tethered to this calendar that's out of our control. You know, that's we, true. We talk about movies however we want to talk about them, but award season creates these really weird conditions where it says, 
right now, you need to get really hyped up about this or that or the other thing. And so we're constantly trying to wrestle ourselves free from that cycle. This week is a really interesting example. I mean, on Monday, it was like a bombshell dropped. You know, in the morning, I got up bright and early for New York Film Critics Circle voting. And at three hours, it was one of the shorter sessions. Boyhood won uh, for best film. And then in the evening, we went to the Gotham's downtown in Wall Street and uh, Birdman won Best Film. So, you know, it's really weird because we've been talking about boyhood versus Birdman, boyhood versus Birdman, this abstract sense. Now, now real, it's real. It's real. We, the we awards right are happening. That, yeah. that's, that those are the two films that sort of lead, lead the race. And it was interesting also, National Board of Review uh, came in the next day. And, uh, well, I, that's not an organization that, that has as much influence um, and clout. Um, it, it, it is still uh, a bellwether of, of what some of the winning momentum, where it's going to go. And, and so Michael Keaton and, and uh, you know, and, 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 and Julianne Moore, but a, a surprise, and, and J.K. Simmons, you know, but a surprise win for J.C. Chandor's Most Violent Year. I have to say I was quite surprised by that. Well, and, and Clint Eastwood won Best Director. I mean, there was a lot about those results that were kind of peculiar, although... And they left out Selma. <laughs> yeah. Know? No, it was very strange all around, but again, you know, it is a reminder that this season is subject to all kinds of whims and unexpected ingredients. I mean, this week, speaking of Selma, Manola Dargis did this incredibly celebratory piece about Ava DuVernay in the Times, which I believe the last time she did something along those lines was for Catherine Bigelow with The Hurt Locker, which really came from behind to you know win Best Picture and to win Best Director for Bigelow. So that felt like a big deal. In this situation, the New York Times has an enormous impact. That kind of story, that kind of timing has serious impact. And she knew what she was doing. And it really does seem like, and I can't go into details about the New York Film Critics Circle voting because of the, the, the bylaws prevent it, but I, I will say that it does seem as though uh, a lot of people support Selma in the critical community, but also, you know, just in, in the film community itself. They, Ava DuVernay is incredibly charismatic and likable, but the subject is obviously even though it's a very, you know, widely revered part of American history, you know, more topical than ever. I mean, look what happened this week with this era. That's Garner, the timing so. factor that sometimes enters um, a race like this, um, where, where it, suddenly something is hitting the zeitgeist just right. It's telling us something about ourselves, the way we want it to be told. And issues of race are serious in our culture, obviously. And 12 Years a Slave was it was one resonant aspect of that last year. And this year, Selma is going to do very well. I figured something out today. You, you've heard it. You're going to hear it from me first, um, Eric. <laughs> I figured out that Ava DuVernay and Paul Webb, believe it or not, are in a very good position to win screenplay, hmm. original screenplay. This is not surprising at all. It's almost like uh, a perfect sort of uh, filtering of, of the different kinds of contenders in the race right now. Because Selma, as a best picture contender, we, we've laid out some factors that would give it an edge. At the same time, once you see it, it's a bit of a hard sell compared to some of the other stuff we're talking That's about. That's right. It'll get into the best picture race. Yeah. I'm quite yeah, confident yeah. of it. And I think David Oyelowo will get into best actor. I really have no doubt about that. I would argue, though, that Ava DuVernay may not make it into director. And why is that? That is because that is a small, snobby, very 
uh, foreign, actually. There's a lot of, of international directors in that group. And they may not be, they may be tougher on a small scale movie like this than any other group in the academy. The writers are going to be rewarding it. Everybody else is going to be rooting for it, except the directors. And I, and I don't know about Unbroken either, Angelina Jolie. That's, you know, you could see the cinematographer, Roger Deakins getting in there. or, or, or I, I just don't have confidence. It's not that they don't deserve to be there, because both of them do. It's because that group is particularly small and, and I don't know how to explain it to you any other way, but snobby. Well, I, I mean, just to play devil's advocate here for a second, you know, neither of those movies are going to be considered by a lot of people to be the best directed movie of the year also. Right. I mean, we both saw Unbroken for the first time over the weekend. I actually just got an award screener in the mail today. So they're just sort of universal. The, the distributors just starting to kind of pick up their award season campaign. You know, Angelina Jolie is very widely respected. And the movie is, I think, pretty well made. But, you know, when you're looking at some of these other things that are being considered for that slot, you know, from Boyhood to Inurito, Inurito with Birdman. I mean, these, these in some ways, you know, these are much grander accomplishments from a cinematic standpoint. And I think one, one aspect of what you're talking about is that these people are very um, snobby as, as film people, and they're looking more at sort of the filmmaking as this sort of this very specific artistic uh, sensibility that, that kind of goes outside of you know, sort of issue-driven issue They're looking things. at craft. Yeah, they're looking craft, at craft, exactly. And they're looking at how the filmmaker uh, delivered, you know, the story and, 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 how, and how well that is achieved. And, and I'm arguing that that group could actually go for James Marsh for Theory of Everything, which, by the way, is one of the most popular movies that's playing in this awards season, along with Imitation Game. And by popular, Those two, you're talking about commercially? No, I'm talking about Academy voters and 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 people in in the film community who are talking about what they're seeing, and I hear them because I'm out and about and I'm going to all these events and things. Well, and I so would... I'm always asking. I am constantly asking. <laughs> I go to all these foreign film events. I'm asking them, which ones did you like? I can tell you that The Liberator from Venezuela is one of the most popular movies that has screened for the foreign film branch so far. So, so you know, this is things you learn by having your, your ear to the ground. And so why wouldn't James Marsh who's British, who's well-respected, who, who already won an Oscar for Man on Wire, why wouldn't he be um, considered for, for Theory of Everything? Now, you're a film critic. You're, you're going to argue back, I suspect, that, that there's reasons to think of Theory of Everything as sort of mainstream and conventional. But, well, what, what will you say? What what will I say now that you've tried to say it for me? <laughs> right. Uh, you know, well, we've been down that road before to some extent, but I, I mean, it is a well-directed movie in the sense that it's very well designed to uh, manipulate your emotions, and, and so that's why critics are kind of mixed on it, and, and also why I think, um, you know, it is a movie that works for, you know, a more mainstream audience, but in terms of, you know... The, the award season, I mean, sure, I could see see that getting into the conversation, but it's also one of those things where I just I just hope that, you know, if, if something like that is, is in contention, then Selma 
and Unbroken both absolutely should be because I just think those are better movies. I mean, we should probably I, talk I, about Unbroken I, a little bit because we haven't really addressed it, you know, since we hadn't seen it. It was the last kind of ingredient. It's, it's a, I mean, I liked In the Land of Blood and Honey, Angelina Jolie's first Me too. First I thought film. it was very well done. Yeah. I thought the acting was incredible. And, and this one is, it feels like a very kind of old school, you know, studio wartime drama, incredibly polished very uh, much like Bridge on the River Kwai, if yeah, you like. It's in that tradition. A lot of elements that are, yeah. this, are similar. It kind of drags after a while, and it's, it's got issues, but it's... Especially in the prison camps yeah. section. That's the one that goes on for too long. Yeah, it's it's not perfect, but I but I think that it's still incredibly well done. She She sort of centers on certain images throughout the movie from when they're trapped in this lifeboat for 47 days or whatever it is to uh, when they wind up in this Japanese uh, prisoner of war camp, you know, that, that I think are pretty rare now in terms of how people make big screen spectacles unless you're Christopher Nolan or somebody. So oh, it's, you know. there's some beautiful shots and that's why Roger Deakins is going to give Emmanuel Lebesky of Birdman fame a run for his money. And since Emmanuel Lebesky won last year, this could be after eleven nominations. This could be Roger Deakins' year finally, because I, I, I hope so. and I there's a there's a sexist aspect to it too, which is that it's sort of interesting. You know, all directors rely on their DP. Every single one of them: Oliver Stone, Michael Mann, James Cameron. You know, unless you're Steven Soderbergh shooting it yourself, you are relying on your DP. Sure, and but yet nobody knows who they who are. Have a sense and and even in the press conference angelina jolie was just so humble and so and ava javernay too very humble there thank you for all thank you everybody who helped me make this movie it is a collaborative art men don't do that as much as the women do that's all i'm saying men don't thank everybody the way that 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 these women do and these women directed the films they did well i haven't tallied up the number of times that filmmakers of the male persuasion have thanked their collaborators, but um, it's Not an interesting argument. And and you know, if you want to make the case that uh, Angelina Jolie's willingness to speak up on behalf of Roger Deakins might win him an Oscar, gosh, more power to you because it's it is overdue. I mean, the right kind of DPs don't uh, get acknowledged nearly enough because it's an art form that a lot of people consider to be invisible as spectators but you know if you know anything about the craft of filmmaking I mean you could see a through line with uh, Roger Deakins career Greg Toland who shot Citizen Kane had a through line with his other films but nobody knows who he is and so these these awards actually do really make a difference in a technical category like that that's also uh, creative in certain ways we should well the thing about this movie that's interesting is that is that um, Deacons I interviewed him um, uh, a while ago and and he he talks about how storytelling is key to his approach and that he has you know he's done a lot of films for the Cohen brothers including oh brother where art thou and he did uh, the Sam uh, Mendes uh, Skyfall I believe if I got that wrong you know, kill me. But anyway, it, he he basically he doesn't necessarily go for show, and and so it's really fun. It's really fun to see uh, him make some spectacular shots that he and Jolie managed to figure out. That are just there's some silhouette shots. There's some there's one gorgeous shot of all the men looking out of a window from from a, a on a train you know it's just it's just a, there's some astonishing stuff in the in the up in the clouds in the, in, in the B24 i mean this is a gorgeously executed movie
But, you know, Bradford Young, who shot Selma, he also shot a most violent year. He's a great young, inspiring, or sort of not aspiring. He's arrived, but he's, he's a, a rising. Yes, he's a, a rising right talent word. who, you know, won at Sundance a couple of years ago when he shot both Ain't Them Body Saints and Mother of George, smaller movies that are as beautiful, beautiful films. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the, it's a really interesting category in that respect to be thinking about, you know, how can we appreciate these artists who are in some ways just as much contributing to the worlds of the movies we're talking about as, as the people behind the camera in, in different ways. Um, there's one other big screen movie that we've seen sort of a, as a kind of a, you know, real Hollywoody uh, spectacle that we should probably address. I, I'm not sure if it really fits into the award season conversation, and that's um, Exodus, Gods and Kings, Ridley Scott's adaptation of, well, it's right there in the title, the uh, second book of the Old Testament, so, Moses! Moses supposes Moses. his toes are roses, but oh, Moses supposes erroneously. See, if I could do that in Hebrew, we would be on the same <laughs> level, because my education was a little bit different. But um, I have to tell you, I have respect for some aspects of the way this movie was made, in the sense that it, it is an attempt to be more faithful than other kinds of adaptations, not that that necessarily matters. But it's not totally faithful, and it's also kind of boring and overlong and doesn't really hold together. It doesn't take enough of a new angle on the story to give yeah. us a, a refreshing view of something that we know so well. Um, it, it's a little more violent, and there's and Bradley Scott, no one does spectacle, no one does battles better than Ridley Scott. There's an opening battle on an enormous CGI grand scale, I and mean, no one does CGI battles except perhaps... Um, Peter Jackson, <laughs> as well as as Ridley Scott, and and I, you know, the opening se sequences took my breath away. They were so beautiful, but boy, was this hard to sit through. It was a slog. It was grim. Yeah, it's grim, but it's also it's so absurd. And I, there's something. It almost feels like this this strain of seriousness that that pervades some kinds of like auteur driven cinema that, you know, when it's made on a certain scale, distracts from what the movie's really supposed to be. I mean, as terrible as the Charlton Heston film is, The Ten Commandments, there's something that almost self-aware about the fact that you're watching a piece of entertainment. And there, there's this movie, Exodus, seems to resist being entertaining. The Twelve Plagues come and go as this kind of sort of silly montage. I know what so. you mean. I mean the plagues are the plagues are the are really hard to sit through. They're just so you're watching it and you're going, you know, oh my God, these people must have been starving. Oh my God, these people, where did they get their water? You're like worried about all these people <laughs> who are being, being being killed yeah. by these plagues, and so God. You know, the Old Testament God was an angry God. You know, God knows, uh, she said. <laughs> but 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 he's really this little boy thing. The whole idea of Moses having these arguments with this young God is, is just very strange. That's a brand new one, and I didn't think he, that it worked. No, the child, the petulant child, uh, you know, sort of embodying God is, is so problematic on so many levels. Most of all, that it just, it's so absurd. I mean, it's just hard to take that kind of character seriously on any kind of level. So and it's unfortunate to see something like that. But also, it made me think about sort of the, the disparity between filmmakers with a certain kind of visionary approach to what they do who work in one arena versus another one sort of outside of, you know, studio logic and so forth. I mean, Ridley Scott has really forged his career 
you know, with big budgets and sort of working in this arena to the point where it, it seems like he, he's used up all of his momentum. I mean, who knows, maybe he'll bounce back again. But, you know, then you look at other filmmakers who, who kind of work around those barriers, whether it's, I don't know, Spielberg or, or even somebody like Paul Thomas Anderson. I mean, just filmmakers who are, who are not really sort of tied to, you know, making things on a ginormous scale so much as they're really interested in how do you tell a story in a, in a, in a different kind of way or in, in, a, in a more advanced way. And then well, allowing part of the answer to your play. question is, is that Exodus is just your classic um, example. Well, what is it? It's, it's a brand name, right? So it's, this is a big studio project. So they're letting a big budget go against a big, well-known story, brand name. They, they're into biblical epics right now. They're doing well by them. And, 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 they're, and they're putting the, one of the bigger stars, Christian Bale, and they're, and they're putting one of the best uh, directors who can handle this kind of scale, Ridley Scott. They're putting this package together. And what I think this shows is that someone like Ridley Scott, who isn't really engaged uh, you know, deeply with this material, it just doesn't. It doesn't have a feel for uh, a vision that is fully realized. You had a bunch of different writers who put this script together, and and that's why it's disjointed, and that's why it doesn't really hang together. The, even the scene, the sequence when. Moses, you know, the one that we remember so well from Charlton Heston and, and uh, you know, parting the Red Sea and so forth. And the, I guess that was the John Huston uh, version of, of, of this. You know, it, it was it was a it was a, a kind of a cheesy movie, but he satisfyingly parted the Red Sea by waving his staff, you know, and it just sort of went, you know, and provided a path. This is an elaborate thing with currents and and tidal waves and being chased across and and, and who's going to get caught. And, and it just goes on forever right. and just many bud millions of pixel dollars later, it isn't satisfying at all. No, it's a, it's elaborate for all the wrong reasons. I guess one of the reasons I find it so frustrating is because of, well, it, I, I want to bring up a conversation I actually had with somebody earlier this week because the, it, it's frustrating to me that a studio would even be interested in making this movie when there are so many more interesting kinds of projects that could be made when these sort of resources are available. And just to go back to the award season conversation, I went to a holiday party for one studio, I don't want to say which, because the person I was speaking to was speaking off the record and was somebody who's famous, and I don't want it to, uh, you know, get out there what they said, but basically this person was incredibly frustrated with the ways in which uh, studios are increasingly more risk-averse, which is nothing new, but also tying that into the way that award season works, that there's an incredible amount of money spent on one kind of awful blockbusters or wannabe blockbusters, and then two, award season. So they spend all this money on these movies that may or may not win awards. And then some of them make money, a lot of them don't. But in most cases, they're not doing nearly well enough to sort of incentivize the studio to make more interesting different kinds of movies. I mean, That's right. Know. That's been true for a very long time. But, but one, of the, one of the issues that comes up is, is it getting worse? You know, a couple of weeks ago we had the Hollywood Film Awards, you know, and everyone's like, what is this? Who cares? You know, and I don't pay city, attention to them because but, they're bogus yeah, and they didn't do well. And, and no one, maybe they won't even exist next year. But they got the press attention. I mean, maybe the narrative around Hollywood Film Awards is that they don't matter, but 
the attention is there. And in the coming weeks, every film critic... But their screen, ratings were way down. They didn't do well. But but it, even so, I mean... That's encouraging, these, is these, what I'm trying to say. I, I guess, but I mean, you know... Well, that what happens is that people want to participate in something that's bogus like this because there's a red carpet, because there's attention for the, the, the cause that they're trying to, to support. And at the point that they begin to wonder if it's worth doing because it's not, a, 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 it's not going to help them, then they will withdraw from the fray. I would like to see that happen. Yeah, it would be nice. But, you know, in the next couple of weeks, every film critics group is going to announce their awards, and then we're going you know, to hear the Golden Globe nominations and blah, 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 blah. And it, it creates the sense that these movies are successful when they actually aren't. And I wonder if there there needs to be you know more people kind of speaking out a little bit about you know the 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 way that money is spent during this season and the kind of messages that it sends when that money doesn't really have any kind of you know doesn't come back to anybody and it really I mean they're just sort of spending it to pat themselves on the back and then well unfortunately it's it helps to support our livelihood Uh, we should be so honest as to admit well I I don't take it for granted but you know as a journalist I still find it you know reasons to complain. No, no, I, I gotcha. Believe me, I gotcha. So, no, look, for me, I, I, I if, if, you know, starting back at Sundance, and we're going to make a, a transition to that subject shortly, but starting back at Sundance, you know, I've been tracking some of these movies like Whiplash, you know, and, and then when I go to Cannes, and there it is again, and then when I go to the fall festivals, there it is again. Um, you know, movies like, like um, uh, that we've been tracking for, for months and going to parties and going to, to events and go, doing interviews, and they just keep coming back around on the, on the cycle. And, uh, you know, that, that part of it I find we- really wearying. Well, so let's talk about Sundance because we've got most of the lineup out there now. Except um, for the premieres. We don't know. The, the, the highest profile ones have not been announced yet. That Those will be coming out on Monday, and then we'll have a more complete picture, which is interesting because the premieres are really now where the marketplace is at Sundance, where some of the bigger stars are, and where, where the buyers really seem to look for you know, Absolutely. Although, luckily, there's some really, I, I, for example, am very excited to see this comedy called uh, the, the Bronze, which which uh, sounds really good and, and from p- people we've never heard of. Another writer, star uh, person working. Uh, do you remember the name? Uh, I'm, I'm losing my mind. I can look it up very quickly. No, uh, but, but it's know, a newcomer who stars and, and wrote the picture. Exactly. And, it's one of those Sundance newcomers. We'll be sick of saying it after six months. So, <laughs> Probably. And then Bobcat Goldthwaite exactly. is back with, with, a, with a comedy as well. Oh, well, no. Bo- stand up. It's uh, Bobcat Goldthwaite made a documentary. It's in the documentary. But, he, but he's, it's a comedy documentary. Yeah, right. It's a stand up comedy yeah, documentary. That's right. It's about Barry Crimmins, who's a, a stand up comedian who then became a social activist. I, I don't really know his work, but it's, um, you know. Bobcat's a really interesting guy since he started in stand-up and then became a filmmaker that Sundance really held up. And this is his first real kind of traditional documentary. So that one looks pretty good. Um, I have to say, I mean, in the competition, there's some really interesting stuff that has some star power, but from different kinds of uh, directors that you wouldn't necessarily expect to be working with these people. Chief, Chief among them, from my perspective, is Andrew Bujalski, who has uh, made this this uh, this new movie in U.S. competition, which is called Results? And um, you know he, he started off uh, with Funny Haha over ten years ago, and some of his other movies are Mutual Appreciation and Beeswax, and was at the center of that so-called movement called Mumblecore. In fact, he said the word casually 
for the first time in an IndieWire interview, and it kind of went viral and became, you know, the way that people would describe these uh, aimless movies about, you know, 20 and 30-somethings with no real plot or whatever. And then all those filmmakers went off in different directions. But Bujowski's an interesting guy because in spite of the fact that people see these movies as being, you know, kind of loose and, 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 and aimless, he scripts all his dialogue, and it's incredible, really, when you look at these movies, how, how believable they are, and yet, when you really look at them, even, they're not plotless at all. I mean, you get drawn into a world to the point where you don't even realize that there's a story going on. Computer Chess, which was his last movie, was, was also like that. It almost felt like it was a found footage thing, but then it, it instead constructed this really fascinating period piece about kind of the dawn of, you know, computer based geek culture, but um, this new movie has Guy Pierce in it. It's supposed to be a comedy about uh, these two kind of uh, irreverent uh, personal trainers with uh, Pierce and, and Kevin Corrigan, who's always great. And, um, you know, seeing something like that in competition, I think, is really interesting, you know, because it, it's, it's not to say, oh, he's arriving. I mean, he's been making movies for a long time, but for Sundance to put him in that prominent slot, I think, says something about, to some degree, you know, the popularization, at least in this kind of more niche uh, community of, of certain filmmakers who have been sort of marginalized for a really long time. I mean, the, the other thing that's cool about Sundance is that they, they actually found a way to make space for a lot of smaller films that used to sort of default to other festivals because Sundance needed the bigger films and also had a limited amount of space. So the next section is always really fascinating and to see filmmakers in there like uh, Josh Mond, who's uh, one of the borderline guys. Uh, he produced Martha Marcy May Marlene, and Simon Killer. He's, he's directed a movie called James White, which is based on his experience with the, um, the death of his mother. And to see something like that, you know, find its way into Sundance, even though he's kind of a newcomer as, as far as, you know, it's his first feature, you know, but, but also, like, still getting prominent positioning by being at Sundance, I think says something, you know, pretty significant about the way the festival has developed in terms of its ability to find a balance. So, you know, I don't know anything without seeing these movies. I mean, there's a documentary called Wolf Pack that sounds like a cool discovery, and I'm excited to see that one, a bunch of That's kids. the one about the kids who are, who are living uh, uh, in an apartment, sort of sequestered and, and living through, through films and stuff? That's right, and then they, they get out in their teen years, and they, they have no real understanding of how to interact with the world. They never used the Internet before, all this kind of stuff. You know, and so this is kind of where we're at right now. We're looking at these movies... And, and just sort of pulling out things that look interesting, uh, either because it's an interesting filmmaker or because the concept sounds promising, but we won't really know until we start talking to sales agents and, and you know, looking at different kinds of details that are out there and then actually seeing the damn things. You know, Although the- one of the secrets of, 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 of being successful at Sundance in a way, because it's, it's so big, there's so many world premieres, I think there are 103 or something like that. There's so many... Um, breaking movies that everybody's dying to see. There's so much discovery going on that you you really have to pick your uh, agenda and stick to it in a way. I mean, you can hear things on the street and go see the second film, the second showing of a film. But if you're the, if you're chasing the high acquisitions, the high end uh, acquisitions titles, you may end up seeing the worst movies at the festival. That's that's, that's the risk you take. That's sometimes. true. So what I'm saying is, you know. What's, um, what's liberating is to look at these movies that, you know, we're talking about stuff in award season that where so much of the nature of our conversation is constructed by hype and marketing plans and all that kind of stuff. You know, the very 
fact that we talk about these movies in a certain way is, is because of things that other people have decided for us. With with these movies at Sundance, I mean, sure, it's a curated lineup, and so they're you know we're sort of at the mercy of that. But there is some sense of an unknown, which is what I think is, is just that's much what's great. More, it's, it's, it's the great. discovery. It's it is the discovery. discovery, and the discovery is something that we and get to discovery do. of new talent too. Yeah, nobody tells us to discover. We we actively go out and find these movies and choose how we want to talk about them. And so that's that, right. That contrast, I think, is is probably what's so fascinating to me at this time of year as as we get deeper into award season stuff and something that's worth keeping in mind. But before we go any further into all that stuff, I mean, we've got another week. Uh, you know, ahead of us where there'll be even more stuff to talk about. You know, the Golden Globes are right around the corner. So, you know, there's a lot more to come. SAG, which has and an SAG. enormous impact on, uh, on the uh, actor race, which is, which is not an insignificant thing. So we've got all that stuff coming up, but there are also real movies opening in theaters this week. So maybe we should shift to t- into uh, talking about our picks for the week. What's your Okay, name? I'm, I'm going to uh, recommend Wild. And um, one of the reasons that I like Wild so much um, is that this is one of those things where Hollywood could have, you know, taken this big heartwarming bestseller, uh, you know, turned it into a, a, a real, you know, sort of manipulative, uh, emotional uh, tugger, you know, more of a fault in our stars kind of thing. Um, and and instead of going that route, they they had the sense to bring in Nick Hornby to write the screenplay, to bring in uh, Jean-Marc Vallée. And, I mean, it was done at the searchlight level. Um, and Reese Witherspoon, who is a major movie star, delivers a makeup-free, you know, no, you know, uh, craziness at all. She's she's really solid in this movie. Um, and it it is very well balanced between what could be very dull, you know, walking along the the edge of of this trail for miles and miles alone uh, with a heavy pack uh, or, uh, you know, the, the histrionics of, of, you know, drug addiction and sex addiction and, and all the things that she was doing, acting out uh, when she was having uh, issues and trying to deal with, with her mother dying and, and everything. It turns into a heartwarming mother-daughter story that, that and a woman's, you know, fight for redemption that really works. And I uh, take my hat off to all of them. Well, I'm going to go with a very different kind of movie, one that's not so much heartwarming as it is um, harrowing and contemplative. And um, it actually premiered at Sundance last year. It's called Concerning Violence. It's a documentary by Jorn Olsen, uh, who's a Swedish filmmaker. And uh, his previous movie, which I was also a big fan of, was called uh, Black Power Mixtape. It was um, a collection of, of archival material that chronicled the Black Power movement through uh, footage of, of its own uh uh, you know, mo- you know, big moments and small moments, and also voiceover from different people impacted by it. Concerning violence takes a similar kind of approach in the sense that it is developed around archival footage with a really uh, uh, elegant uh, contemporary jazz score. But um, it's uh, it's a very different kind of movie in the sense of what it focuses on, and the topic is colonialism. It's uh, it's based on an essay by uh, a philosopher uh, and, and scholar named uh, Franz Fanon. Uh, and and uh, the, the essay was called Concerning Violence, the, the book, which was published in 61, I believe, was called The Wretched of the Earth. And uh, it's essentially a, a about the, the systematic way that colonialism destroys indigenous communities. And uh, it, the, the way that Olsen structures the film is 
he uses this footage of colonialism from all around the world uh, in, in nine chapters. So you see everything mm. from Burkina Faso to Liberia, really shocking images, some of which are in black and white, some of which are in color, uh, but with the, these uh, passages that are sometimes text on the screen, sometimes they're, they're read aloud in voiceover, um, and, and Lauren Hill is the one who, who reads the voiceover and is involved with promoting the film. And um, it's just a remarkable and, and sort of hypnotic way to explore the, the concept of colonialism and sort of pair the, the, what, this sort of analytical approach with seeing the system in action. Uh, you know, it's, it's an interesting contrast to the way the media works. You know, the media narratives are always so narrow in terms of, you know, how we understand what's going on around us. This really pulls things into focus in a different sort of way. And, it, and, it, and it's very watchable. It doesn't feel too cerebral or academic. So I, I highly recommend people uh, go check it out. You made me want to see it. Yeah, um, now, uh, the, the um, one thing we didn't talk about this week, maybe we should address it next week, is is the doc list. Uh, there was a short uh, list revealed by uh, the Academy um, uh, doc branch, the, the, the top 15, and the IDAs are Friday night. Um, the International Documentary Association Awards are Friday night. So that will give us something to talk about next week. Sure. And the um, other thing is, are we going to do 10 bests? Are we going to count down? Are we, are we going to do it next Friday? I think, you know, it's right around the corner for us now. It's, it's interesting because um, the IndieWire Critics Poll, which we tend to think is, is uh, one of the bigger ones of the fall just because we get so many people to participate, is uh, got another week to go before it closes down. And a lot of people are struggling to fill all these different blind spots. I feel like I'm in a pretty good place. I mean, but I continue to shift around a lot of other categories. And I found that the more that I divide and conquer, the, the better my opinion of this year in cinema gets. And, I, and I, I'm starting to feel like this is one of the best years for this kind of list making maybe ever because there's wow. so much different stuff out there. Um, and it really just depends on how much people have seen and how much they're willing to spread the love. But I hope that other people do that too. All so that being really said, what's really fun yeah. about the, about this is that we can each go ten to one. You've already given away your number yeah. one, so there, there's going to be no uh, big big uh, reveal there. But um, it's fun uh, to sort of count down. Uh, you know, you do ten, I'll do nine. You know, we, we'll work our way up the list. It'll it'll be sort of amusing. Yeah, yeah. So stay stay tuned for that. In the meantime. Uh, I've got to go back to editing some stuff because, you know, duty calls. You know I speak, little Susie Eshes, up on the jacuzzi Eshes, up on Eshes, Bob, I got some rhythm and a beat, oh yeah. It's been years since I've seen her smile. I took her to the band in the shoulder where it's at, oh yeah. You know I speak, little Susie said something's got into her head. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.